This is The Rounds Table. Welcome back, Rounds Table listeners. My name is Katie Wiskar. I'm a fellow in general internal medicine at UBC, and I'm back as your host today, and I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. Stéphane Voye, who is a practicing general internist at UBC, uh, who works in a number of academic and community centers, and I'm really pleased to have him here today. So Stéphane, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Katie. It's always great to have different perspectives, and I think you always bring a very interesting take and have a lot of clinical experience, so I'm really interested to hear your thoughts this week on our two articles. So with that said, let's get right into things. So Stefan, why don't you tell me the title of the paper you chose for this week? Sure. So I took a paper called Medication Reminder Applications to Improve Adherence in Coronary Heart Disease a randomized clinical trial. The first author is Carla Santo, published in BMJ Heart in August of this year. All right, great. And what is the bottom line for this article? Uh, This is a study looking at medication reminder apps in an effort to improve medication adherence. So in this single center, single blind randomized control trial of roughly 160 patients with coronary artery disease. The group identified that the use of medication reminder apps was associated with better medication adherence. That's very interesting and a very sort of refreshing and novel kind of study. A lot of the papers we tend to talk about are studies of medications or surgical interventions. So I'm really interested to see where this goes. So Stefan, can you tell me first, why did you pick this article? You know, I think we don't see that many practice changing articles in terms of new medications or new interventions to offer our patients. I'm always on the lookout for practical things that can help me deliver the healthcare that I deliver better. You know, I think we we all believe that medications work, but I think we also accept that they only work if people actually take them. There's estimates out there that maybe 40% of patients or more are non-adherent to the medications that we prescribe. And I think you've probably seen a number of apps in the app store that claim to improve medication adherence through programmed regular reminders. They make those claims, but those claims are supported by very limited evidence. So we have evidence that some interventions like text messaging or phone calls can improve medication adherence. We don't have that same evidence really for most apps that are out there. So this research is kind of looking to build on that existing evidence. That's great. I mean, I think that often in medicine, it seems like we're living like 30 years ago with fax machines and pagers and like mail reminders. So I think the fact that this study tried to look at using something that most of us use all the time on our phones, you know, apps to make our lives easier, is really interesting. So let's get right to the heart of the matter. That is the only pun. I have, I have no other puns, but, but I tried, Kieran. So tell me, what, uh, what was the study design here and where did it take place? So the research group is, um, they're out of New South Wales, all the investigators. It looks like there's sort of a mix of clinicians and scientists. And the one sort of obvious thing to note about this study is that it's a single center study. So both validity and generalizability, that's just a little amber flag. It's also a single blinded RCT because of the nature of the intervention. You can't have someone interact with an app and not know it. That's pretty fair. All right. And then who were the patients who they actually included in the study? 
They included adults, so anyone over the age of 18. In order to participate, you had to have a smartphone because the apps are smartphone-based. You had to have an adequate command of the English language, and you had to have established coronary disease. This was either previous MI, known angina or unstable angina, previous PCI, or previous demonstration of at least 50% stenosis in one coronary vessel on an angiogram. All right. That sounds pretty reasonable. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about in the limitations, the fact that you had to obviously own and know how to operate a smartphone and kind of the population that that might exclude. I'm sure we'll get to that in the limitations. But what did they do then? What was the intervention for this trial? So they did a sort of parallel three-armed intervention where people received usual care, which, you know, really just like standard cardiac care delivered by your general practitioner, then standard care plus exposure to a basic medication reminder app or standard care plus an advanced medication reminder app. And what was really the difference there between the two apps? Do they specify? So these were both sort of highly rated apps on the Australian app stores, either through iTunes or Android. And the difference between them really is is in terms of customizability. So the basic app, the patients were asked to enter the medications that they take and the schedule that they take those medications on. And then the app would just send them a reminder sort of through an alarm or a text message reminding them to take their medications. The advanced app had a number of other sort of customizable functions including, you know, health goals, the ability to enter whether or not you'd taken your medication and so on. All right, that seems pretty reasonable there. And then what was the primary outcome that they looked at? So they're using something called the Morisky Medication Adherence Scale 8. They measured people's medication adherence through that scale at the onset of the study, at their enrollment, and then at the three-month mark. The medication adherence scale is like a validated tool to assess medication adherence, essentially. All right. And were there any important secondary outcomes they looked at or not so much? Yeah, there were. But, you know, I think it's worth noting that this is a pretty small group. So you'd have to see pretty big effect sizes to note a difference in the secondary outcomes. So they did look at systolic and diastolic blood pressure, total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, number of pills missed in the last seven days, and knowledge about your medications. Uh, Well, I think I understand sort of the setup of the study. So why don't you go on and tell us what they actually found? So maybe to start with, who were the actual participants in the trial? So the people who ended up going through with the study were screened for inclusion by presenting to a hospital to a cardiology ward or through a cardiology clinic for the most part. And... All they really do is they describe sort of a diverse group of people. They were 87% men, 58%, uh, sorry, 58 years old on average. Uh, we don't know that much more about them. They do uh, sort of describe the medications that these people take and so on. Table one basically is pretty kosher. No big surprises. And then what about the results for their primary outcome? Did they actually manage to find a difference in medication adherence? Yeah, so... The way that they report the effect here is they sort of lump the two app groups together and they find that the Morisky medication adherence score for the usual care group is 6.63 and 7.11 in the treatment groups on average. A mean difference of 0.47 to which they ascribe a p-score of 0.08, so a statistically significant result. And is there any sort of sense in that as to like how many additional medications like 
someone would be taking then per day or per week with that degree of increase in their score? No, you know, I do not have a good sense of how big a difference of 0.47 is. You read the paper. Do you have a sense of, of whether that's like they say it's significant? Is that really significant? I don't know. I mean, it obviously is statistically significant, but I, I agree. I didn't get a sense of, you know, is that them missing three less antiplatelet agents a week or difference of one pill a week. I don't think they were able to tease that out. That would have been nice to see, but I guess within the limits of the methods they use, they couldn't really tell us that. Yeah, that's the sense that I have as well. Yeah. Uh, any other outcomes you wanted to talk about? They really found no difference in any of their secondary outcomes, which I think isn't all that surprising because what we're looking at here is a difference in medication adherence that probably isn't all that huge. And then that's further diluted by the fact that the bang for your buck that you're getting for any one of the medications is also not that huge. So I wouldn't expect that this would show a huge difference or a huge effect on people's blood pressure or cholesterol levels or anything like that. Yeah, I agree. I thought it was really not that surprising that they didn't find a difference there, given the size of the study and the magnitude of the effect. But I guess it was interesting that they looked. So, Stefan, are there any interesting points or sort of observations that you want to make about this study in particular? Yeah, I think we can look at these results and say, you know, what is a mean difference of 0.47 on the Mariski medication adherence scale? You know, is that meaningful? And I think the answer is to improve these scores in a group of 160 patients who were probably, you know, they're smartphone users. They may be sort of socioeconomically better off than the average person. They may be overall more likely to take their medications than the average person. Is this a huge or significant difference? And I think the answer is for these 160 people, well, maybe not. But one thing I like about this intervention is that it's pretty low risk. No one's going to die from using a medication adherence reminder app. It's free or very cheap to send this out to patients. So when we look at interventions on a population level, you know, I think people could benefit from a little bit of coaching and a little bit of sort of automated coaching that doesn't take up a crazy amount of anyone's time. And, you know, I think the other thing that this study makes me think about is taking up more technologies to help us better manage our patients and assessing how those technologies work in our individual workplaces and in our individual centers. I think there's probably more work we could do to take a closer look at some of these technologies and see if they would work for our patients. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I, I read this paper and I think I knew that medication adherence in patients isn't always great, but I have to admit, and maybe this was me being naive, that I was surprised to read, you know, that figure of like 40% adherence that they cited in their introduction. Um, and I, I think probably a lot of physicians and maybe, you know, younger, less experienced physicians, especially like, I, I tend to forget that just because I prescribe a medication doesn't necessarily mean the patient is taking it far from it. So I think that, as you said, this is like a very, very low risk. There's no side effects. There's virtually no cost. Probably something that I should think a lot more about, not just, you know, these apps in particular, but but ways to improve my patient's medication adherence in general, because obviously no pill is going to work if the patient isn't actually taking it. So... All right. So we've kind of talked through the the results. Are there any significant limitations that we haven't touched on yet that you wanted to bring up? Not really. Were, were there any for you? 
Not really. I mean, I think we talked about the fact that this was a younger cohort, certainly. Like, I have a hard time picturing my 95-year-old grandparents who don't even have a computer, you know, like getting their medication reminder app on their smartphone. But I think for most of our patients, this would be pretty applicable. Yeah, I think so too. You know, I think that there's one maybe small concern about the blinding. You know, the, the outcome assessor was blinded to the randomization, but you could definitely imagine a situation where the patient shows up and talks about the app, you know? Of course, yeah. No, that's a, a very good point. Definitely, especially for self-reported studies like this. All right. I mean, overall, would you say that this is our findings that we can kind of take at face values, those sort of limitations aside? Well, I think, I mean, what it's doing for me is, particularly as it relates to my outpatient practice, I'm going to have a look, a much closer look at these medication reminder apps and see if there's one that my patients are interested in or that would suit their purposes. Um, I, yeah, I think I will try it. I, I think I will too. It's not something I've really looked at, but I think this is some reasonable evidence that these apps could be helpful. So yeah, practice changing for me, I think. Once I get back to actually seeing our patients in the outpatient clinic and not just doing ultrasound all day as I am right now in my fellowship, which is awesome. Okay, well, thank you so much, Stefan. That was great and really, really interesting and quite novel. So we're going to have a bit of a change of pace, still keeping on the theme of cardiovascular disease and heart health, but now looking at the second paper that I chose to look at this week. So this was the ASPRI trial, so the effect of aspirin on disability-free survival in healthy elderly, in the healthy elderly, sorry, um, published just recently in September in the New England Journal of Medicine, and the first author was John J. McNeil. And it was actually published alongside two sister articles that were specifically written to address some of the secondary outcomes that I will attempt to very briefly touch on as well. So kind of a lot to, to get through, but I will try to succinctly summarize as best I can. New England Journal of Medicine. Hey, I thought you'd given up reading the tabloids. <laughs> I know your thoughts on the New England Journal, but you know, it's, it's out there. It's a big trial. It's got a catchy acronym. So I think it's worth talking about. <laughs> I'm giving you a hard time. I know. Okay, lay it on me. What is the bottom line for this paper? All right. Uh, so in this prospective double-blinded randomized control trial of over 19,000 community-dwelling healthy older adults who were free from cardiovascular disease, the use of enteric-coated aspirin, 100 milligrams daily, compared to placebo, did not influence the rates of disability-free survival at five years of follow-up. Only 19,000 patients, eh? Only. Tiny trial. <laughs> okay. So, I mean, this is this, uh, obviously a huge headline. Tell me why you picked this article or how is this important to the listeners? So, I mean, I think that no one is going to argue about aspirin for secondary prevention of cardiovascular disease. I think that's, you know, been well established, but there has been, you know, some evidence and studies looking at aspirin for primary prevention in different populations. And thus far, the evidence had been kind of mixed. I know personally, like, I'm always shocked by the number of patients I see taking aspirin for primary prevention, either because they've been, you know, instructed to take it by a physician or because they have sort of taken it upon themselves to 
take a daily aspirin. And actually, I've had like a shocking number who don't even disclose the fact that they take aspirin until I ask them about their vitamins and supplements. And they kind of add, oh, yeah, I take a baby aspirin along with their vitamin D and vitamin C. So there's this prevailing perception that aspirin is universally good for the heart and everyone should take it, at least among some people. So I think that this trial sought to, you know, be some firmer evidence to guide us one way or another in those patients. You know, it's so interesting. I met a woman this morning just admitted to the hospital for some totally unrelated problem, who told me that she just stopped taking her aspirin a week ago because she'd read in the news that if you hadn't already had a heart attack or stroke, you didn't need to be on aspirin anymore. Good for her. That's awesome. Yeah. She, we, she doesn't even need to listen to this podcast. She knows it all already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, so obviously this paper has made some waves. Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah. Okay, so why do you tell me about the nuts and bolts of what they did here? So this was your classic prospective, double-blinded, randomized control trial conducted in 34 centers in the U.S. and 16 in Australia, uh, although most of the patients were actually from Australia, about 90%. All right, and what can you tell me about the patients? So these were community-dwelling adults, so not from nursing homes, who were 70 or older without documented coronary disease or cerebrovascular disease without any life-limiting illness that the enrolling physician judged would limit their survival to less than five years. And I should say they actually used 65 as their age cutoff for blacks and Hispanics in the U.S. because of the higher rates of coronary disease and dementia in those populations, which seems reasonable. And they excluded patients who had already been diagnosed with dementia, had a significant physical disability, given that, as we'll talk about, new disability was one of their primary outcomes. Those who were judged to have a high risk of bleeding, and obviously anyone with a contraindication to aspirin. I mean, that all seems like pretty standard stuff. Lowering the age for Blacks and Hispanics, I think they're looking to have like a representative sample or a more representative sample, particularly if most of the enrollment happened in Australia, where I think they have a little bit more sort of homogeneous population, if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think when looking at the demographics that we'll get into in the results section, I would certainly agree with that. Okay, so the specifics of the intervention? So fairly straightforward here. So the intervention was 100 milligrams, so not quite a 81 milligram baby aspirin that I'm used to, but close enough. So 100 milligrams of aspirin daily versus a placebo pill. And before starting the trial itself, they had a run-in phase for four weeks, and then only the patients who took over 80% of their pills, as judged by a pill count, at the end of that were included in the trial. So this kind of gets to your study, looking at medication adherence, but I guess trying to you know, make sure they had patients in the trial who would be able to tolerate and who would be compliant with the pills, which is, again, pretty fair. Then in terms of follow-up, they did annual clinic visits and phone calls every three months. Okay, so we've got a bunch of pretty healthy people, sort of 65 plus, 70 plus year old people without known established coronary or cerebrovascular disease, without dementia, and without any significant life-limiting illness or significant disability. And it's an Australian-American study. Everyone's getting aspirin. And what are the primary outcomes that are being measured here? So their primary outcome was disability-free survival. So they defined that as survival free from either new dementia or new physical disability at five years. The trial actually ended slightly early, so 4.7 years on average, which I think was, and I'll maybe talk about this a bit more, but different than the sort of major adverse cardiovascular events outcome we often see in these trials, but I think a pretty fair endpoint to pick. So that was their primary outcome. 
They also looked at a number of secondary outcomes, a few of which I will just touch on briefly. So they looked at all-cause mortality as a secondary outcome. They looked at cardiovascular disease, which was comprised as fatal coronary disease, non-fatal MI, fatal or non-fatal stroke, or hospitalization for heart failure. And then intuitively, they looked also at major hemorrhage. So that was hemorrhagic stroke, symptomatic intracranial bleed, or a clinically significant extracranial bleed. So again, all fairly standard stuff, especially when looking at trials of you know antiplatelet agents and that kind of thing. Okay, so let's hear it. What were the main findings? All right. So in terms of their participants, so this was, again, a huge cohort, 19,000-ish people, about 9,500 in each group. Just over half were women, but 90% were Caucasian, so a fairly homogenous cohort. And as we said, they were pretty healthy on average, although many of them did have cardiovascular disease risk factors. So 74% had hypertension, about 64% had dyslipidemia, just over 10% were diabetic. So there were sort of risk factors there. In terms of our primary outcome then, there was no significant difference in the primary outcome, which was this composite of death from any cause, physical disability, or dementia. So kind of an interesting negative finding there. Yeah, and that sort of matches up with some other earlier data, particularly in diabetics and so on. Yeah, but I think obviously a huge cohort, so a sort of nice strong result to see that there wasn't any difference found in this very large group. Now, this group managed to publish three papers in the New England Journal based on this one study. It's actually quite impressive. So there's a separate paper in the journal where they talked about the cardiovascular disease and the major hemorrhage. So they also found no difference in their composite of cardiovascular disease, nor in any of the components. But unsurprisingly, there was an increase in bleeding. 8.6 events per 1,000 person years in the aspirin group versus about 6.2 for the placebo group. So that was a hazard ratio of 1.38. And again, a fairly intuitive difference, given that these people were on an antiplatelet agent. Yeah, and that's relevant because we're not just reading here that there's no difference. We're saying, well, you know what, aspirin actually does have some downsides. Totally. And then lastly, so in the third paper of this series of three, they reported a secondary outcome of all-cause mortality. So they state that they found an increased mortality in the aspirin group with 12.7 events per thousand person years compared to 11.1 in the placebo group with a hazard ratio of 1.14. Now, I'm not a statistician. I am like clinical epidemiology is not my area of expertise. But in sort of reading these papers, I was a bit intrigued, puzzled, concerned by some of the statistics and the language they use there. So in the main paper, they actually briefly mention the mortality outcomes, but state that because there were no adjustments for multiple comparisons of secondary endpoints, no inferences can be made regarding the difference in mortality between the two groups. So to me, in my very sort of simplistic understanding what that means is whenever you are doing multiple comparisons and multiple sort of statistical analyses because the more things you compare the more likely you are to find a difference by pure chance that's the way statistics works and that's why we have p-values and so on you need to adjust your statistical analysis and your thresholds to account for those multiple comparisons is my very simplified understanding and correct me if i'm wrong certainly and they didn't do that But then they go on to write this whole paper about the mortality data. And to me, they really underplay this statistical caveat in the abstract and in that paper. So I really don't know what to make of that entire paper, basically, which specifically also found that there was an increase in deaths related to cancer in the aspirin group at 3.1% versus 2.3%. But again, that whole paper was kind of a bit puzzling to me. I don't know if you had any other thoughts on that. Yeah, so I don't want to sort of foreshadow 
too much here, but you had asked me when we talked about doing this show that I was meant to bring up a Good Stuff article. And my good stuff has to do with this paper. And that was not accidental. I I think this is, oh boy, I, you know what? I'm going to try not to swear on a podcast. This is not good practice, I don't mm. think. <laughs> if you look at the paper from enough angles, if you look at the raw data from enough angles, you will find these statistical differences that really, if you weren't looking for them prospectively, you wouldn't have found them. I just hate stuff like this. This is bad, bad, bad practice. Shame on them and shame on the New England Journal of Medicine. Yeah, I have to say that, you know, I totally agree with you. And again, I do not have an advanced understanding of statistics, but I think even I can wrap my mind around the fact that this isn't how statistics were designed. And if you're using something in a, a different way than it was designed, it all sort of falls apart. But I'll let you tell us a bit more in your good stuff segment, and I'll kind of leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, this is sort of the academic equivalent of clickbait. Yeah, no, definitely. So, I mean, I think the, the first two papers anyway, there's a lot there to unpack. How does this sort of change how you see aspirin or change how you're going to talk to people about aspirin? Well, I feel like there's a, a couple points that I'll make first before I maybe get to the bottom line for me in practice. I think the first thing to point out is that obviously this is a trial of primary prevention. It was not a secondary prevention trial. It doesn't change sort of our practice in that sense. And I don't think it necessarily answers the question for all patients within that primary prevention range in that it was a pretty homogenous cohort. Certainly we know that there are ethnic differences in rates of cardiovascular disease and they weren't really represented in this trial. So I don't know if it fully answers it for those patients or patients who might otherwise be at extremely high risk of cardiovascular disease. Your 70-year-old smoker, poorly controlled diabetic, strong family history, all of those things. So I think that is sort of one caveat in terms of generalizability. I did really like that they picked survival free from disability or dementia as their primary outcome. So I think, as I said, we often see sort of major adverse cardiovascular events as the outcome. But I think from a patient perspective, certainly this endpoint is much more significant because there's obviously a huge difference between a minor end STEMI that's, you know, a day or two in hospital and a debilitating stroke. And if I were a patient, this is the outcome I would care about. So to not totally hate on the authors and this article, I would say that, you know, I think that was a good choice to use that as an outcome. Yeah, I agree completely. What about major limitations? Yeah, I mean, the whole statistical piece aside with the mortality bit, I think that, you know, one thing is the cohort and the fact that there wasn't a lot of diverse ethnic representation, which we talked about. The other thing just to point out is the duration of the intervention. So while five years seems like quite a long time and certainly is in terms of, you know, conducting a scale of this magnitude, for some diseases that may have a very long latency before clinical presentation, so dementia or Alzheimer's, it's actually quite a short time frame. So I don't necessarily think it changes how I interpret the trial at all, but just something to be aware of. Yeah. So now in terms of your clinical practice, what what have you learned here that you can put into practice? So, I mean, I guess just to summarize, so this was a well-conducted, large, double-blinded trial that didn't show any benefit in terms of disability-free survival for healthy elderly patients for primary prevention with aspirin. So for me, clinically, I think I don't routinely prescribe aspirin for primary prevention at present, so I don't think this will significantly change my practice in that respect, certainly. I do think that this gives me more evidence and sort of another tool for those patients who come in who are on aspirin for primary prevention, whether that's, you know, because another doctor has put them on it or on their own volition. Uh, it gives me 
some good evidence that I can use to talk to them about that and have a, a frank discussion about whether or not that's actually the right thing for them. Yep, I think I see it the same way. All right. Well, after that somewhat spirited discussion, um, <laughs> let's move on finally to the last part of the podcast. And you've already foreshadowed it for us, Stefan. So tell me, what is your good stuff this week? What have you been reading? <laughs> I think I'll say a couple of things first. One is, you know, I really enjoyed doing this and I'm about to now talk about an old paper, first of all, so I'm breaking several rules here. And it's an old paper that flies in the face of most of the activity of the rounds table. And so I suspect this will be my first and last appearance on the rounds table, which is a bummer as a big fan of the show. Uh, but anyway, it is what it is. I'm sure it will not be, but tell us about your paper. <laughs> so I'm bringing up a paper that, you know, I should have been aware of a long time ago and for whatever reason wasn't. It's a paper by John Ioannidis that I think made quite a lot of waves. It was published in PLOS Medicine in August of 2005. And it's called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. I'm not going to belabor this, but it is a paper that I think people should be aware of. Yeah, I remember coming across this, I think, a year or two ago. And, you know, as you said, it, it kind of flies in the face of what we read. But I think it's, as you yourself had said before we started recording, it's important for us all to have a healthy degree of skepticism and remember that, you know, a lot of what we read may or may not be the source of truth. And, you know, you need to retain some common sense with all of this and, and when practicing. Is there anything else you want to add there? Or are you going to let people read it and figure it out for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think people should, this is an important paper. It is, it should be part of everyone who's a, an evidence-based medicine enthusiast should be aware of this writing. I would say there's a couple of just basic things here that he brings up, including being skeptical about small studies, being skeptical about studies where the effect size is small, being skeptical about studies where you wonder whether the authors are trying to race to get, get something published before another group, like sort of publications in hot fields. And so, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't believe what you read. I just think it means that you had to take things with a grain of salt. And when you're going through a paper, the first thing that you should read before the abstract and before the conclusions is the methods and satisfy yourself that you are happy with the methods. Absolutely. Well, I certainly think it's time for me to reread it. So thanks for bringing that up. Of course. What's your good stuff? Well, we're a bit of a depressing pair this week because I have also picked something that's not super lighthearted, I guess. Not to be political or turn this into a political podcast, but I thought it was quite appropriate just in light of the recent series of events in American politics. So this was a piece called Time's Up in Medicine, Only Time Will Tell, which was a perspective piece, again, in the New England Journal. Don't hate me. Um, but very well written, I thought, by three women, Esther Chu, Jane Vendis, and Derek Cass. And just sort of a commentary about a recent report from the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine about sexual harassment in medicine. And it was quite sobering and depressing to read both how common this is and how hard it can be to change things at sort of institutional or national levels because of a lot of kind of ingrained inequalities and injustices. So this paper is kind of a wake-up call and a call to action to medicine to try to address a lot of these things. So I thought certainly worth a read. And if you're a Twitter person at all, like I am, all of these women are on Twitter and are great follows. Esther Chu is a very vocal activist about you know gender inequality and a number of other issues. So also a plug for Twitter there. <laughs> yeah, good for you, Katie. This is a big issue, obviously. Yeah, it's a super important thing to bring up. Well, 
I mean, I can't thank you enough, Stefan. I know you're post-call and want to get home, so I will let you go. But I really appreciate you coming on the rounds table and sharing your experience and your thoughts and your skepticism. I think this was a really interesting discussion today, and I certainly hope to have you back. Yeah, really, really my pleasure. Thanks, Katie. Thanks for inviting me. I really hope to come back. I hope that I didn't mess things up too, too bad. <laughs> you certainly have not. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. <laughs> Thanks a lot. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer Emily Hughes, audio editor Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director Grace Zhao, segment director Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.